6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah with a session titled, Monuments from Prehistory. I'd like us to pause in our visit to Cairo and fly up to England. I want to go to the Salisbury Plain now, a place that is known as Stonehenge. And the word hinge really meant hanging, hanging stones. This is a monument that in many respects is even more fascinating than the Great Pyramid. And of course, uh, what we're talking about here is a monument that is apparently built several thousand years before Christ. It was originally caught everyone's notice because it was regarded by many scholars as the oldest, you know, since there were some stones on top of another one of the oldest structures. Turns out they've just underestimated. There's a lot more going on here than at first meets the eye. We're talking about a monument that represents a circle of about 300 and, I think it's 320 feet in the diameter. There's a bank around it that's approximately six feet high and 20 feet wide. Just inside that bank, there are a group of holes, 56 of them that are known as the Aubrey holes, because they that was the first guy that discovered them, because they had been covered up earlier. They're holes that were dug and filled with chalk, never, hold any, never held anything else. Some of the are not chalk, some of them are human cremations, which is kind of a colorful footnote. We're going to discuss what obviously I'm getting at is in, in the early 60s, Gerald S. Hawkins made history by discovering with the computer that this thing actually was an astronomical computer. And so it was some very fascinating capabilities. The capabilities that it has happens to hang heavily on four key stones, known as station stones. One here, one here, one here, one here. Why am I bringing this up? For a number of reasons, one of which, if you line up these two station stones, they line up to 118 degrees azimuth, and if you go on that azimuth over a great circle route, guess where you end up? At the Great Pyramid. The properties of this uh, monument hang on the fact that this is a rectangle. There is only one latitude in the northern hemisphere where this will work the way it does. This monument is within a mile of that latitude. Incredible engineering in a sense. Lining this up with north, the key axis of the pyramid is over a thing called the heel stone. That's the key to the whole thing. The word heel, no one knows where the name came from. But the Welsh name for sun is Hael, and the Greek name for the sun is Helios. So most people think that linguistically that it clearly has to do with the sun because it's been recognized for centuries that midsummer sunrise, the sun at midsummer, rises exactly over the heel stone when you line it up through the monument. By the way, all these stones I'm going to describe in effect create gun sites or windows for certain intersections on the horizon. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about what the thing consists of. There's a row of holes out here called the Aubrey holes, and there's a row of uh, Y holes and X holes, for lack of better names. Then there's the monument itself. 
in the center. Around the outside edge, are, there are sarsens. That's essentially a silicated uh, sandstone. Then there's a row of what they call blue stones, because it's a kind of stone that is blue when it's wet. Then there are the famous trilithons. These are two stones with a lintel across. And there's five pairs of those sarsens. And then there's another this uh, horseshoe of, of blue stone. So the axis is here. There's a blue stone horseshoe, horseshoe, the trilithons, then the blue stone circle, and then the Saracen circle. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. I'm not trying not to bore you with all this together, but let me give you a feeling for the um, uh, trilithons, the big ones here. There's five pairs in total. The stones weigh 50 tons. Okay? What also is interesting is the way these things are built, and this is goes for th these things, but also the ring around the outside. The stones themselves, say seven feet across and however high, has a uh, mo uh, mortise and tenon construction. The top stones are curved, fit those, and also have tongue and groove. All of this was done on a remote site and brought to the Stonehenge site. The Sarsen circles came from the Caselli Mountains, that's in South Wales, about 240 miles away. And they weigh from uh, uh, 30 tons to 7 tons, depending which way you're talking about. The blue stones came from Marlborough Downs, about 20 miles away. They weigh 30 tons each. Now, by the way, these things are all different heights, but planted in such a way as to make it the top of it level. If you take the height of that and multiply by the number of stones, 30 stones, you get the exact height of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. If you take 10 times the inner, circ the, the, the inner uh, circumference, you get the perimeter of the Great Pyramid. Okay, so much for all I say. That's, all, that's an interesting monument. Let me uh, uh, indicate uh, what Gerald Hawkins did. He knew that for centuries everybody understood that the monument had something to do with Midsummer Sunrise, but no one had analyzed it further. He took the position of all the stones and all the holes, X, Y, Aubrey, all that, and he digitized it and put it on a computer. Then he also took an ephemeris, which is essentially a, a database of all sun, moon, planet, and star positions. And he had the computer exhaustively searching. Every one of these stones, as you, if you're on Stonehenge, you realize every place you look, it's like a gun sight. It lines up under all different kinds of circumstances. So the computer exhaustively looked at that. With the stars, no alignments. With the planets, no alignments. However, in the dozen different extreme positions of both the sun and the moon, he got over a dozen confirmations. In other words, this thing clearly somehow had been designed to uh, highlight the extreme movements of both the sun and the moon. Now, and he published a paper on that basis, which shocked the archaeological world. And if you know anything about how objective scientists are, <laughs> I think that's an uh, you know oxymoron, but uh, objective in science. I'm always intrigued because they have such a tradition of objectivity, and yet I've never seen more emotional reactions than if you talk to an astronomer about creation, or, or if you, uh, and on it goes. And the archaeologists did not accept his findings because what does he know? He's an astronomer. But his pa papers gained a lot of uh, credibility. Some guy wrote, um, in, among the many letters he got, one person wrote him a letter pointing out a legend 
the documentation of an ancient Greek legend how the sun god Apollos used to visit the British Isles every 19 years, some kind of legend. He said, is there something at the monument that occurs every, approximately every 19 years? Well, that intrigued Gerald Hawkins, so he went back to the computer. And by studying further, he discovered that the uh, eclipse cycle at Stonehenge is every 18.61 years, and if you use the Aubrey holes the right way, it'll predict eclipses. And by using the X and Y holes, you can even predict the day, if you do it right. And then he published that in his famous book, Stonehenge Decoded, and became famous. CBS News did a live report uh, on site showing the midsummer sunrise exactly as it predicted and all that stuff. And some of you may remember that. I think it was about 1964 when all that happened. So Gerald Hawkins is the de facto expert on Stonehenge, and of course, uh, uh, all of that uh, speaks for itself. I'm intrigued with one particular observation. The archaeologists point out that Stonehenge was built over a 300-year period, and then strangely abandoned. And one of the things about Gerald Hawkins' computer models is that this eclipse business has an error in it once every 300 years. So you can guess what the priests that were in charge uh, must have thought when it finally goofed. People start noticing some other things. The angle of the heelstone to north is, if this is north, is 51 degrees, 51 minutes, the very angle that makes up the Great Pyramid. And so they start studying the possibilities of this thing relating to the Great Pyramid. Okay, fine. They also conjecture that let's assume that the Aubrey Holds represents a complete Earth cycle. And let's take that as 7,000 years. And uh, if you do that, it turns out that uh, a year is 0.05143385 degrees around the circle. Got 905 foot circumference with 16 foot intervals of the Aubrey Holds. And you can build a clock that goes from minus. 4127 B.C. to plus 2874 A.D. and so on. And there's a whole thing to get into in terms of evenings and mornings and all of that. I'll spare you all that right now. Well, what they do with this then is they start looking at this as a chronometer. And it turns out, apparently, that all these different alignments line up with a key date in history. They also notice that those alignments line up with angular and dimensionally to the same kind of chronology in the Great Pyramid. So that all gets kind of intriguing. And we could spend, you know, obviously a lot of time on this stuff. But to give you a flavor of this, you can carry it all the way through and, and, uh, and where you got uh, the death of Adam, the birth of Noah, and, and all these dates, you can, you can go through this sort of thing. The last ju uh, uh, jubilee of Israel and uh, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, 312 A.D., Constantine, and on it goes. Now, in this, by the way, one of these key angles is 112 degrees, which points to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, when you look at the Passover moonrise and the angle that points to Jerusalem, you get the Christ angle, 26 degrees, 18 minutes, 9.7 um, seconds. So... That's kind of provocative. And you're saying probably right now, uh, will this ever end? No. <laughs> so I could spend the evening intriguing you about Stonehenge. I got interested in that uh, oh, about 20 years ago. I was in, I, I've spent 30 years in the computing industry, and of course Stonehenge for lots of reasons. Um, uh, a lot of these discoveries happened to be coincidental with my taking over the computer center at Ford Motor Company, so I used to get into Stonehenge and I used to use it as a colorful addition to some of the public speaking I used to do. So I got into that and I was actually uh, over there for a while and 
and I won't bore you with all that. The point is, I've been in that a long time. So on the one hand, there's much about these monuments, both the Great Pyramid and Stonehenge, that can intrigue you. In fundamentals, it's certainly intriguing. It's also kind of intriguing from a biblical perspective. Its relationship to Stonehenge seems to be too precise to be accidental. And yet again, many of the conjectures and these uh, uh, interpretations uh, are perhaps a little fanciful. Let's back up a minute and talk about a few other aspects. Secular science today has a gigantic problem. Most of us have been raised on the idea that biogenesis and evolution and so forth was the commonly accepted modality for secular science. Except secular science is embarrassed at this point because recent discoveries by NASA and others demonstrate clearly that the entire universe is finite and had a beginning. That has staggering implications for you and I. It demonstrates that there really was a creation. I mean, from even strictly from observable science, we know that. Not only did matter and energy, but time and space had a point beginning. You and I generally visualize Big Bang as, and by the way, the big, all Big Bang is is a, is a label for a collection of models. The critical thing are what are the parameters. And now that they can measure the parameters, those parameters demonstrate, first of all, the universe is finite, and secondly, that it had a beginning. You and I visualize it exploding, filling space. No, as it grows, space and time have a beginning. We know that in modern physics. But that causes even the most uh, competent thinkers. Hawkins and Penrose and others, to admit I had to be a designer. So somehow this, uh, this uh, comfortable, infinite, it's, things have always been this way kind of mentality in science is out the window. Second problem. Most of us have grown up in high school, college, whatever. Uh, whether we bought it or not, we were pounded with the idea of biogenesis, that life started on its own. Since 1957, we know that's impossible. We discovered a thing called the DNA code, which is a digital code. Three out of four code error correcting. If you have a digital code, you have to have a designer. You can't design the computer until you have the language. You can't have the language. To I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a three-way corner shot. No way it can involve by randomness, no matter how much time you've got. Cosmology has destroyed evolution because there wasn't time nor enough material. This is easy mathematical proof of that. It won't take the time tonight. The point is. In secular science, you've got a real problem. And in the words of one of the commentators I was reading, it says, we've got to reach out for an alternative. <laughs> now, you and I chuckle because the alternative has been given to us by the designer. It's sitting in our laps. But that isn't, quote, objective. So that's a little background from the, that kind of thing. Let, let me change gears and show you some other mysteries that the scientists are beginning to scratch their heads about. The two oldest cultures on the planet Earth are Sumer, or what we call, what the Greeks call Mesopotamia, the southern part of that particularly. The other one, of course, is Egypt. Both of these cultures, by the record, have something strange about them. Both of them start abruptly with no buildup. They do not have a development. They appear to be uh, beneficiaries of a legacy. They have right up to bat representative government, public schools, legal codes, massive public works, gridded cities, mathematics, astronomy, and a written language of some kind. 
the history from the beginning seems to be a decline. Now, by the way, I'm fascinated to read this in current literature because you and I know why. You see, all, we, we've been all victimized by this, uh, you know, ascent of man foolishness. Hey, it's the other way around, gang. Started high and dropped down, according to the Bible. They look at Egypt, same thing. The history basically dates from the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt. But it's interesting, knowledge seems to be complete at the beginning. Again, it's not a development, it's a legacy. And I could prattle off the scholars that are, you know, Wallace Budge, who's translator of the old Egyptian, Henry Frankfurt in linguistics, Alexander, by the way, the, from an architectural point of view, Robert Temple from a mythological or astronomical point of view. Egypt has some other interesting aspects. It had a decimal system for its mathematics for everyday use, but its religious mathematics used a base 60, sexagesimal, which is, of course, the mathematical basis of Babylon, or the Sumer, the Mesopotamian basis. That's why we have 360 degrees in a circle. That's why we have, you know, 60 uh, seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour and so on. All from Babylon, all from Sumer, or from Mesopotamia. Let me ask you to turn to 2 Kings 21. We're talking about Manasseh, the son of uh, Hezekiah. Let's not worry about the history for the moment. But it says in verse 3, For he built up again the high places. Manasseh was bad news. He's reestablishing idol worship. And again, the high places which Hezekiah's father destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made an idol, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. They built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts in the house of the Lord, and on it goes. The reason I pull this out is I want you to notice something. You and I, as we read the Old Testament, encounter idol worship, and we often look at that as a quaint historical thing. Let's back up a minute. If you recall our studies in the long day of Joshua, you know that there's a possibility that seems to be confirmed that the planet Mars made some near passbys on the Earth, being originally in a resonant orbit with the Earth. A 360-day year for the Earth, which we know prior to 701 B.C. was universally used by all calendars, and Mars may have been in those days a 720-day resonant orbit involving near passbys on October 25th and March 15th, or 20, excuse me, 25th, on every 106 years. And that's recorded in history, and that conjecture has all kinds of implications, but the net of it all is, is that... Uh, some of those passbys were as close, apparently, according to the models, about 70,000 miles. Interesting conjectures. To give you a feeling for this, that means that Mars would rise from the horizon about 50 times the size of the moon. It would cause 85-foot land tides. It would be preceded and followed by not only meteors but bolides, bolides being like meteors that explode. Uh, these are recorded in history, generally viewed by many people, like uh, you know, as as uh, legends or exaggerations. But in fact, uh, appears to actually have happened, and that's one reason the ancients were terrified of Mars. That's where we have the term martial arts in a language today. That's why Rome was not built on the coastline; it was 12 miles up the Tiber. Why? Because they knew they had 100-foot tidal waves every 100 years or so. And all of this is, of course, in our tape on on the Long Day of Joshua. The point I want to make, though, those conjectures seem to be confirmed by Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travels. And I'm running out of time. We'll, we'll tie some of this off next time. Let me get just at this point. You and I have probably little appreciation for why the ancients worshipped idols. They were terrified of them because they represented what? The hosts of heaven. What were those? The planets. They interfered with their lives. I want to develop this further next time because I am convinced 
from my studies of the pyramid and Stonehenge, I think I can lay out for you the likelihood of what the great delusion is going to be. Because Jesus Christ predicted that at the end time, that the world would be sent strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And we'll look at these passages up next time. In Matthew 24, he says that it were, if it were possible, it would deceive even the very elect. Is this some little religious thing, some new idea that's going to be very popular? No. It's going to be worldwide. It's going to be accepted by everyone except those that are supernaturally protected by Jesus Christ Himself, according to His comments in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll talk more about this next time. There's one picture of the uh, Great Pyramid that I didn't show you that I think you might find interesting. It's on your dollar bill. Take out a dollar bill and look on the green side on the left. You have the Great Seal of the United States, reverse and obverse. And there, of course, is the pyramid and, and the capstone. Instead, you've got the all-seeing eye, and most of you recognize this as an occultic symbol. But what does it say underneath? Novos Ordo Seclorum. New World Order. So what's going on, my friends? I've prattled a little here about these strange topics for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you know anything about immunization, the way you make somebody immune is to give them a mild inoculation of the disease. And it's been my intention, although I may very easily fail, but my intention to share with you enough so that you won't be blindsided if you run into some of the promoters and people who go too far with these in any of several directions. That's not the issue. And I will, when we get together next time, share with you what I believe the lie of 2 Thessalonians 2 is all about. But that doesn't mean I'm right. And it'll be instructive to go through some of that and to re-talk about the conditions we're heading into prophetically. But the real issue I want to get across tonight is you have only one protection against these delusions. And that's to be in Jesus Christ. Now, you've probably heard it a thousand times, but you'll hear it one more time. Your eternity is going to hang on your position in Jesus Christ. And what I really want to encourage you to think about is not to leave this room tonight until you have opened the door to Him. But Jesus, a lot I don't know. No problem. You'll take care of it. My life's all screwed up. Absolutely. <laughs> so is mine. So is everybody in here. The mistake is to assume you can fix it. No way. He didn't ask you to become righteous before you approached Him. It's the other way around. You will never become righteous until you've approached Him or let Him approach it, come into your life. You can never make it on your own. I'm trying as hard as you can. No way. I'm doing the best I can. Uh-uh. Not a good enough. God, for His own reasons that you'll understand as you get into it, has chosen to determine your destiny by your relationship with Jesus Christ. Strange idea at first, until you really understand what He's, up, what he's about. He's trying to demonstrate perfect love.
There's nothing you can add to what God has done to provide a destiny for you. That destiny for you is so fantastic that there's nothing you can do to qualify for it. For you to try is to blaspheme God's completed work. But that destiny that He has, that grand adventure that He has for you, is available for the asking. In the privacy of your own counsel, you can come down after we're through talking and change your eternal destiny. He will handle the whole job. He will handle the whole job. Now, the danger is that if you don't do that, you've got a couple of dangers. First of all, your window of opportunity could close at any time. I'm not trying to sound morbid, but things could happen on the way home, things could happen next week, next month, whatever. You have a window of opportunity that's foreordained by Him. You're here right now tonight by His divine appointment to have this opportunity to protect yourself from the confusion, the delusion, the hostility that is being organized by your adversary. And you have only one protection to keep from being deluded, and that's to be in the Word of God with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. That's the name of the game, and we'll develop more of that next time. But I don't want to close tonight without dealing with that one issue. There's a coming world leader that's going to be accepted as the Messiah by Israel, as the great peacemaker, and mid-career he's going to betray them. I believe he's also going to be accepted as the Mahdi, the last Imam of Islam, and the union of Islam and Judaism under him will solve the Temple Mount problem that we talk about in the book. It's all happening. He's going to be the most charismatic, charismatic, dramatic guy you've ever seen. And he's going to be able to do signs and wonders, whatever the Bible means by that. Will he have extraterrestrial help? Very likely. We're going to get into next time what really happened before the flood of Noah, and why did the flood really come? And what's the link of that with respect to the planet Mars? What's the link of that to the one that's coming? And what does the son of perdition really mean? And what strange things lie behind those idioms? We'll get into all that next time. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.